Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he set out to out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my ox, and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, went to their way, one to his farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and and destroyed those murderers and sent their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy to go. Therefore, to may who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all the found, both good and evil. And the wedding halls was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man where he was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, and throw him out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Amen. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The kids are invited to kids' church, which shall be today. The um, for many are called, but few are chosen is sort of the overarching sort of meaning of this parable. Um, I thought by maybe having uh, a child read it, we'd miss how brutal it is. Um, it's important to remember at these moments um, that parable, um, these are parables of what the kingdom of God is like. This is our third Sunday in Lent, which is our journey towards the cross, in which we sort of try to inhabit the darker moments of the story so that the light of Easter can shine all the brighter. Um, and this is for us our way of sort of drawing our hearts into that there was real agony, there was real difficulty, there was a real cross before Jesus. And so we sort of take this time to sing sadder songs, to um, 
to focus in that way, to do introspection in a way that leads us to um, when we sing Christ the Lord is risen today on Easter morning, for it to be the glorious light that it is, not just um, another Sunday in which we never look at darkness and the cross. And so what we've been doing for, for Lent this year is, is reading the parables that lead us up to the cross in Matthew's gospel. Last Sunday we heard from Jesus' sort of last parable outside Jerusalem before he goes there for Holy Week. Um, this parable takes place on the other side, on after Palm Sunday. Um, and one of the reasons why I, I hope that these parables can enlighten for us is his parables gain in intensity as he moves closer to the cross. If you read the parables of Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, is like a mustard seed, is like birds, and there's darkness in them, but they don't quite contain the judgment. And, and, and by that also, alternatively, the grace that fills it that the parables in, in Jerusalem have. And so since last Sunday, I'm going to try and fill in some of the things. Last Sunday, he, he um, went into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and he clears the temple. Now, um, that's an important scene to remember because this is how you get yourself into trouble, is attacking the powers that sort of negotiate in the temple. To clear that out is an extreme thing. The next thing he does is he kills a fig tree, um, which there's, uh, I always think of uh, at, at anti-human uh, sexuality protests, there's always somebody who has a God hates figs sign instead of the other organization, if you know about them. Um, so God hates figs. He kills a fig tree, and in that is the symbolic act of what he thinks of the state of Israel. And particularly if you, if you want to do this, you can think that these are critical most of Israel's religious leaders. Not all the people, but the religious leaders. Now, as a religious leader myself, I'm like, no, no, it's probably the people. It's not the religious leader. Um, but, but when you read these parables, there's certainly an indictment of Israel, but there seems to be more an indictment of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and these people who are going to sort of trap and try to kill Jesus. But what that fig tree symbolizes is what he did at the temple, that he's going to talk about the spiritual state of the place he's gone to. And that's important to remember. And so these two parables that follow that, um, there's a question I think about authority after that. But these two parables, the one before it is the one um, where the vineyard owner goes away and then he sends his servants back and they beat them up and then he sends his servants back and they beat him up and then he sends his son and they kill him. And then it's sort of the question of what will the king do? Um, that's the preceding one. And then this one, which was read for us this morning, which is about this um, banquet that this king is throwing, this wedding feast for his son. And in between is this notion that the Pharisees and the religious leaders know that they're talking about him, them. And so at the beginning of today's story, it's Jesus spoke to them again in parables. It's sort of directed at this sort of upper echelon of people. It's directed at these leaders. But what I would say, and then what follows just before we get to our next one, is a time of questioning, the greatest commandment, um, them trying to trap him, and then we'll get to the two other parables that make up Matthew 25. There's actually three parables that make up, make up Matthew 25, the, the parable of, of the bridesmaids, the parable of the talents, um, some berry, some this, and then the sheep and the goats. So if you have one you'd particularly like to hear a sermon on, let me know because it's still up in the air for the next two weeks on which one of those I'll do. And they all really bleed together well. But that's sort of where we're going after this. 
And the conflict rises in the story going forward from here. And this parable is, I think, an interesting one because it speaks of, of the binding of Israel and the binding of the church together in their struggles. Certainly in the halves, the first half that's focused on those already invited who don't come, you could say speaks of Israel historically, and those who are there but some are not dressed appropriately, um, which is a nightmare for everybody in Colorado because we never dress appropriately to the occasion. At least if you're from the Midwest or the East Coast, God forbid, you'd be like, what are you guys all like, homeless? Um, uh, regardless of which, that, sorry, weird aside. Um, the, uh, <laughs> sometimes those things just come out and there's nothing you can do. Um, uh, this parable, um, the second half, which in which somebody isn't dressed appropriately, speaks to Christians in particular. But given 2,000 years, there's two things I think we could say about it. One, we certainly can fit, as we go through this, in those called who don't show up. It doesn't just speak to Israel's troubles today. And certainly that second half that clearly speaks to us, how are you clothing yourself to be at this banquet, speaks to us as well. And so last week I proposed, we'll, we'll consider the historical context as we go through this stuff, but also that this is sort of soul work for us. It works on a corporate level for the church, but it's also sort of, when you really listen to these parables and go through them slowly, it begins to do surgery on your own self to say, where am I in this story? Where are these things speaking to me and going on? And so the quote we sort of set up for this series this is quote from Graham Greene in one of his novels that you can't conceive nor can I of the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. Last week, um, that idea of that those who come and work for an hour being made equal to those who worked all day in the hot sun, there was an appalling strangeness of the mercy of God in that one. But this one with, with a whole city destroyed and then a guy wearing wrong garments thrown out into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, what do we hear in these parables about this um, appalling strangeness of the mercy of God that we can't conceive of? And last week, I think it was clearly that, that God is more generous than we are was sort of the point of the parable, that he is more, we look at him with envy because he is kinder than we are. But I pointed out that the two questions at the end, are you mad because I'm generous and you're not, was preceded by another question, which is, don't I have the right to do with my, my own what I want? And I said that left open the window for us. We don't get to dictate to God. I mean, without that question, we'd be like, oh yeah, God is super generous and kind and forgives all things and this, that, and the other, and it doesn't matter if you don't work at all. He's still going to give you an equal wage. But it proposes at the end, that perhaps God can do what God wants, that God's ways are beyond our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And that's a deep challenge because it means that divine mechanics certainly aren't for us to figure out as much as we try and much as we might, and that'll play in certainly to the end of this parable. But this parable today speaks of this appalling strangeness of the mercy of God as well. People don't want to come to your wedding you burn down a whole city. One person shows up clothed incorrectly and is cast out. And how are we going to hear in that? How are we going to make sense of this story? And so it closes with that, for the many are, many are invited, but few are chosen. Um, 
And how does that lay into the story? What does it mean that many are invited but few are chosen? But I want to start with the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son as we go through this. The first thing that that sort of stands out to me is that the kingdom of heaven is like a party. Um, And so when you go to churches and meet Christians, you go, oh, those are obviously people who know how to throw parties. Um, I think it's getting better. Um, I will say that. But but these, these, often these parables speak of abundance. They speak of extravagance. They speak of, I mean, even if you think about the parable of the lost son or, or the prodigal son, depending on how you know it, there's, there's this big party that happens at the end. That, that when the woman cleans her house for the lost coin, she rejoices greatly. That there's this rejoicing and fullness that comes in this. And so to start with, I think it's appropriate for us as Christians to consider if people were witness to us and how we invite and interact with people, would they say the kingdom of heaven that these people know about is like a wedding banquet, is like a grand party? And Scripture has more than that in it. But I think I've always said this here is it's better to keep the extremes Let us go into sackcloth and ashes and fast. And let us throw a party that people walk away accused of being drunkards and gluttons, which is what happens to Jesus at some point. To keep the extremes rather than to say, well, let's just even out in the middle. Not too much fun, not too much sadness, not too much uh, holiness thought through self-reunciation. Don't feast too heavy. Um, We like the moderate space in between. But I think it might be wise for Christians to say, when we fast and when we lament, let it be a grand sadness and lamenting. And when we celebrate, because the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding feast for his son and kills the fattened calf and and several other animals um, and is excited to share that, let it be like that as well. That's the first thing that sort of stands out to me from this parable, is that this fullness of time in which we wait is going to be like a wedding feast. And you can pick that up in the book of Revelation. There's um, this notion that the, this is the, the marriage ceremony of the church as, as God's bridegroom with Jesus as sort of the groom. And that is the fullness of what we await. That is the, um, uh, in medieval literature, it's sort of called the, the uh, beatific. Is that right, Carla? Beatific vision, this, this fullness of all things in the moment. Um, and that's what we await as Christians. And it would be wise for us to witness to some of that during our time in the world, to have some of that be made manifest for us. And so it's an allusion to that. And in Israel's story, too, there's this notion in which there is a great banquet that all the nations of the earth will come towards when the fullness of time comes and God sort of sets things to right. And so this is a core theme of the story. It's not just me picking up one line in a parable and trying to make a mountain out of it, but this is witnessed to it in multiple angles. And so what the king does is he sends his servant out to those who have invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refuse to come. Before we get too far into it, in the ancient Near East, there's at least a pattern that suggests, first I would send you an invitation to the banquet. It's um, two weeks away. At, at, uh, it's two weeks away. And then when the day comes, I would send my servants out to tell you, 
everything's ready, now is the time to come. And so what this king didn't just go, okay, the wedding feast is ready, go gather the people. The people have known and been invited. This day in which the servants go out, he's, they're going out to people who know that this is the day of the feast. And yet they decline. Then he said, send some more, then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My ox and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. What I think we can miss if we read this too fast is that there are two um, times that the king sends out his servants. There's this line from Second Peter. It also appears in a different form um, in the book of Romans. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. But wanting, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The king sending out his servants twice certainly is a gracious act. And this is not just like a small wedding. This is the wedding of the king's son. And so if his people, if his um, citizens, when he says them, sets out his servants once, they say, no, we're too busy. There would be enough reason to say, not where the story's going is worse, but enough reason to say, let's move on. Let's find other people. But the fact that God sends out his people twice to gather people, or the king in this parable, is a sign of that patience and kindness that we should sort of um, hold dear in our lives. That God is kind and patient, that God is slow in this way, is for us to bring more uh, for every, so that no one will perish, but people will come to repentance. Oftentimes when we think of patience, we think of weakness, I think sometimes, um, but God's patience is a strong patience. It's a patience that wants people to, to have the time to make that decision. And as we're reading this parable, and again, as we think it through it in historical context, God sends out his prophets. God sends out his law and Moses. God sends out um, people to point to this coming kingdom. People refuse. But what God keeps doing is sending people out. And we see this in a couple of the other parables. Is God is one who keeps sending people, and the people keep ignoring. And in other parables, it amounts to God finally sending his son. In the previous parable, it is that. The, the king sends his son, and they murder him, which is, of course, where this story is going as well. But he invites them two times, and I think that's a good sign for us of this good feast and good time. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was in outrage. He sent his army and destroyed those murders and burned their city. Um, was a, that escalated quickly is a quick um, observation on this. And this, this parable um, shows the, those two sort of um, extremes we were talking about before, that there's an extremity to this. Um, you know, dinner is ready. Well, I've got time to send my army and destroy a whole city. Like, we're obviously not in the realm of real time when we're listening to this parable. The fattened calf would be burned. The ox would be overcooked. Um, the food would be cold, in some sense, if you think about it. And so there's something else being said here. 
Now, in the historical context, um, most people think this is a clear allusion to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., that the early church in its um, struggle to make sense of the world um, looked at the Jewish people's rejection of Jesus, and then when that destruction comes to Jerusalem, they think that that's clearly a picture of God's judgment in that they're not taking Jesus on. And so that this is, is an allusion to something that is near to their lives in some ways, that the city of God has been destroyed because people were unwilling to accept his son. As a, as a, that's a hard teaching, I think. But, and so I'll let that, all these things take the hard teaching. Uh, Origen had an interesting way of interpreting this, this parable too, of sort of viewing it as your individual self. Uh, in your inability to go to the kingdom, that stuff will be destroyed. Um, in your refusal to go near to that, that is laid waste. Um, and, and Origen reads the whole parable, and you could go through it if you want after the service, as the parable of sort of an individual soul. Your rejections, you're not being prepared, you're not willing to go. And, and for Origen, in his weird way of looking, this is a second, third century church father, in his weird way of looking at individuals, there are parts of you that will be laid waste if you are going to make it to that day. Which in one sense, you go, maybe I'll take the historical suffering in 70 AD rather than my own soul being laid waste. I mean, you've got to think about these things for a little bit before you make those bargains. Um, and yet people want to go to their field and business. And this is where I think um, when we think about Israel here, it's easy to be like, well, they wanted to go and tend their temple. They wanted to go and do their thing. And they weren't ready for Jesus coming as the coming kingdom. But how much more so that when we're invited to things with the kingdom of God or to give up or to do this, we say, I've got stuff to do. I mean, I've heard people say, not in a long time, but like, you know, God's got my soul, but I have to take care of stuff in the meantime. Come to the wedding feast of the sun. Well, I've got some business to do. I've got to tend my farm. And in Matthew and Luke and John, there's an immediacy to the kingdom. Drop your nets and follow me. There's this way in which we often, I think, because it's been 2,000 years, forget the imminent expectation that God is going to return. And I have pastor friends that, that say to me, which is interesting, they say to me, well, we obviously don't live in that world. And I always try to say to them, well, we obviously live in that world, we just act like we don't. Um, we obviously live in the world in which we are supposed to expect that Christ will come, return like a thief in the night, and bring about the restoration of all things. It's our blindness, uh, laziness, and difficulty and, and notion that we should be better than that to some degree that keeps us from living in that world. In the later part of the New Testament, not the book of Revelation, the later part of, of, of Paul's letters, um, deal with some of this tension in, in that we are supposed to expect that at all times and yet still have lives to live. I'm not going to say it's an easy thing. When you watch this, this temple gets destroyed in 70 AD, you could walk out and be like, Jesus must be coming right now. The imminent expectation of this kingdom seems much clearer. But I think if we abandon the imminent expectation of the kingdom, the danger is we just don't expect it at all. We don't think about it at all. How does the contours of the territory that Jesus is carving out for us in this kingdom impact my daily life, my work, my play, how I interact with my children and my spouse, how I am with my neighbors? 
It's this eminence that is there for that, that we are supposed to keep it near at hand because it will have an effect on our lives. And if we go, well, that's way off and we never know when it's going to happen and who knows the time, but then also take, and the who knows the time is to say, could be tomorrow, could be this minute, could be this hour not to lead to apathy, which I think is the way it's gone in the modern world. Just in case you're wondering, this is not an endorsement of the Left Behind series either. Um, uh, It's for us to store up in ourselves that Christ is near, that Christ will return, perhaps in our lifetimes. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, is the prayer of the church. And to have an expectation like that, I think, can make up a bigger difference in our lives. Certainly, to where not the people who go, the party, I have to go to my field and I have to go to my business before I can go there. This time, though, the people are annoyed, too. Um, they, they take some of the uh, servants and mistreat them and kill them. Now, if you're familiar with the way that the, the, that the Old Testament is used in the New Testament, but also the Old Testament, the, the prophets are often mistreated and killed and suffer. And this is, and, it, and Isaiah alludes to this, too, is that Jesus that God is going to give justice for that. And you see it throughout the Old Testament that God says, I might as well sort of destroy it all, and yet he always saves a remnant out of it, that restoration always comes. The book of Hosea is a grand parable in this too about the restoration of Israel after the judgment. And so for them that the king would be enraged like this, I think speaks clearly. But then we get to the second half of the parable, which concerns the church. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is not ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Just to pause right there, that those who were invited did deserve to come. They were the ones invited first. In in the English translations that I like better, it says those invited were unworthy. The servants went to them twice and invited them to come. They were certainly people who would appear worthy to come to this. And so what Christ says there is that the wedding banquet is ready and I invited did not deserve to come and that their rejection of coming changed their status from worthy to unworthy. It's not that they were unworthy to come first off, but in their rejection they become unworthy. So go to the street corners, invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with gifts. This is this grand sort of expectation of what the kingdom will be, that all people will sort of be uh, invited and brought in. That the servants this third time go out and get everyone to come to the party. And this is what's clear about what God is doing, is that God is intent on throwing this party. Um, God is the one who is going to make this party happen. And this should give us an immense joy in who God is. I am going through with this party regardless of whether anybody comes or not, and I will gather people from the streets to make sure that this party happens. And what separates the people at this moment is people who, who acknowledge that they should go to the party and people who, acknowledge, or who say they shouldn't go to the party because they're busy. 
And if you think about the way in which we divide the masses up as Christians, unbelievers and believers, um, active and not active, invisible church, invisible church, all these sort of ways, the real question is, who are the people who want to go to the party and who are the people who are too busy or too angry to show up or don't want to acknowledge it's going on? Because that's really what we're doing when we invite people into this. If the disciples and the, and the apostles and the church as it is today are the servants, what we get to do is go out and invite people into this thing, this reality that God is producing. And one of the things that I think should, should shock us is, well, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with gifts. The bad as well as the good. Now, there's two or three sort of interpretations here. Let's see how many I can remember and how many matter. Um, uh, 